Good morning. My name's Kevin, and next week marks six months that I've been on staff here at the church. So that's pretty cool. In my notes, that wasn't an applause line, but thank you. Seriously, the last six months have been incredibly a steep learning curve, and I'm learning lots of things. For example, I learned that what we just watched this morning is called a bumper video. And the bumper video is actually really important. I didn't know this, but it fulfills at least three different purposes. The first thing that the bumper video does is allow the worship team to get off stage without being a distraction. You hardly noticed. The second thing the bumper video does is give you time to transition and prepare for the sermon. And many of you spent that time pulling out your Nehemiah study journals. Let me see them. Good. There were three in first service. You guys are doing great. Um, the Nehemiah study journal um, is available at either of the welcome tables in the back. And um, we've asked for a donation of $9, but if you can't make a donation, that's okay. We just want everybody to have one of these. Because we think it's a great idea to have one place where you can take the notes for the entire series. And so if you don't have one, pick one up. If you do have one, get it out. We'll use it today. The third thing that the bumper video does is to provide a visual and an auditory context for the content that we're getting throughout the series. And studies have shown that if you have a consistent reminder, a consistent context, that you're more likely to retain the material you hear, and then you'll have it so that you can apply it. All right, so now that I've explained to you how important the bumper videos are, I'm going to screw it all up. You see, that bumper video that we watched was prepared by professionals. Pastor Adam worked with our communications team, including Carrie and David, and they put that together as only professionals can. But I'm the new guy, and so I wanted to make my own <laughs> Nehemiah series bumper video. And so, with the help of Joseph at Color Studios and $15 out of my own pocket, I say that because I don't want you to think that your tithes and offerings went to this. <laughs> I produced and wrote my own bumper video. Now, I think it turned out pretty well, but I want to give you a chance to see it. In a time of great national stress for a once great country, one man leaves privilege and palace to assume the mantle of leadership. Declaring a national emergency, he begins efforts to build a wall to restore the country's safety and maintain its sovereignty. These wall-building efforts are challenged by outside foes from foreign nations desiring to harm the leader and his people. And now, the challenges from within his own government and among his own people threaten to interrupt the early progress. How will this leader respond to these challenges from without and within? What will become of the people of his nation? When will a wall finally be completed? Let's find out. Nehemiah, Wall Builder. There's something wrong with you people. Um, 
Don't worry, we're not going to be talking about any other leaders and their wall-building efforts this morning. But my silly video does raise an interesting point, and it's one that I want to spend some time considering together, and that is, how is leadership evaluated? We live in a time when if you're a leader, you are under constant scrutiny and evaluation. Just turn on CNN or Fox News, turn on your radio to 971 or NPR, um, open up the Twitter app or open up Facebook, and you'll get all of the evaluation of leadership that you ever wanted, and then some. And so my question to you is, how do we evaluate leadership? How do you evaluate leadership? How should we evaluate leadership? We're studying the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great example of an effective leader. And so as we go through that, it gives us a chance to evaluate Nehemiah's leadership. And we're going to do that this morning. To get started, I want you to think about how you would finish this statement. Leaders are best when they blank. Leaders are best... Oh, I heard listen. That's very good. And we'll probably get to that. As you think about your answer, okay... Let me address the pronoun choice in that statement. We. As in, we leaders. As in, all of us who have any role of leadership or any opportunity to influence anybody. Now, before you turn out and miss the lessons from Nehemiah, that probably includes you. Because each of us has a sphere of influence, some people that we can have an impact on. So parents... If you wanted to jot down the names of your kids, you could think about them in your sphere of influence, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Teachers can write down the names of their students. Students can write down the names of their classmates, their teammates, their siblings. At work, we've got an opportunity to influence our coworkers. We've got an influence to, we've got an opportunity to influence our subordinates. We can influence even our bosses. All of us have a sphere of influence. And so as we go through four different answers to the phrase, leaders are best when we blank, I want you to know that each of us can apply those in our lives with our sphere of influence. Now, what I did this week was to take that question and send it out to about 2,400 people that I'm connected with on LinkedIn. And that's an app that I use to stay in touch with some of the really good leaders that I've had a chance to work with and for over the last 25 years. And here's how some of my friends who are leaders responded to this statement. They said, leaders are best when we put others first. Leaders are best when we don't get an unfair share of returns. That's my friend. He's kind of still bitter about where we worked. It impacts you, you know. Leaders are best when we become true and honest servant leaders. Leaders are best when we are transparent and real and when we help others reach their full God-given potential. You see why these are some of my favorite leaders, right? This morning, we're going to see four specific ways to finish that statement as we study chapter 5 of Nehemiah. But here at the beginning, let me give you an overarching way to fill in that blank that I think will will encapsulate everything that we talk about this morning. And it's this. 
Leaders are best when we are most like Christ. Everything we talk about is going to fit into that. If we could get that, I mean really get it, then we could just close in prayer right now and get out there and start influencing for the sake of the kingdom. But you're probably like me, and there's still a work in progress. And so let's dive into Nehemiah chapter 5 and talk about how leaders are best. Nehemiah provides a great example of a good leader. And in his example, we're going to see his Christ-like leadership. We're going to use Christ and his leadership as the yardstick for, his leadership, for Nehemiah's leadership. All right. As we go to the Bible, let me remind you, as always, that you can tune to the, um, the YouVersion app, click Events, and select First Free Church. All of the stuff is there. I've even got some extra stuff that I'll tell you about in a little bit. Um, you can go to efree.org slash Bible. You'll get there, too. Or you can go old school and pull out your Bible and follow along. We'll be in Nehemiah 5, and we're going to be going through the entirety of the chapter, as well as some other scriptures that we'll pull in that are along the way. So let's start with Nehemiah 5, chapter 1. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet, we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it. For our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. So if you've been following along the last few, mo- few weeks in this series, um, you know that the time of Jewish exile is over and the Jews have been returning to Jerusalem. But we see here that the plight of some of the poorest families is still a tremendous struggle. In fact, just to feed their families, they're faced with the prospect of selling their children into slavery. Now, my kids are sitting on the front row. I don't propose that that would be a solution, but it was here. Can you imagine? And we see Nehemiah as the governor engaging with and entertaining the conversation and the complaints of these people who are struggling to find enough food to eat. And I want you to see his response to this crisis. In verse 6, he says, When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. So Nehemiah is listening, he's engaging, he's empathizing with the people that Christ will later refer to as the least of these. And Nehemiah's righteous anger and indignation at the mistreatment of God's people kind of reminds me of how Jesus responded when the poorest among him in his day were being mistreated. And if we look through the Gospels, we see Jesus willing to associate and engage and listen to 
many of the least of these. We see them with kids. We see them with um, tax collectors, women with tarnished reputations. We see them with Samaritans and pig farmers and lepers and poor widows. The list goes on. Jesus is clear when he tells us, whatever you do for the least of these, you do unto me. And we see that leadership example of Jesus played out in Nehemiah. And that gets us to the first of four ways that we want to fill in that blank. And that is, leaders are best when, they, when, we, when we see, hear, and care for all of the people. Now, it's impossible for us to see, hear, and care for all of the seven billion people on the planet. But I think the example of Nehemiah and the example of Christ calls us to at least see and hear and care for those that God has put into our lives. And the question is, as you think about your sphere of influence, are there some people just on the outside that God would have us bring in? We're going to move on to the second point, but I want to take a look at verse 6 and the first part of verse 7 again, because I think there's a lesson for us as leaders that I don't want to go too quickly over. Take a look at this. In verse 6 and 7, he says, When I heard their complaints, I was very angry after thinking it over. That's the first half of verse 7, but stop right there. If you're you're keeping notes in your journal, you may want to circle those 13 words. Because in them, I think, is a progression of how we should respond when we're confronted with a difficult situation. It starts, when I heard. And we already talked about the fact that Nehemiah was willing to listen to people that the other rulers had completely ignored. And then it goes on to say, I was very angry. Now, long before Daniel Goleman wrote any books about emotional intelligence, here's Nehemiah recognizing the anger that's rising up in him with a self-awareness that is a component of any good leader. He recognizes it. I was angry. And he wants you and I as the readers to know that he didn't go straight from being angry to letting the nobles and officials have it for, what the, wrong, for the wrong they were doing. He says, after thinking it over. Now, unfortunately, we can see lots of examples. We can see lots of examples where a leader goes straight from anger to action without thinking it over. You could probably come up with some yourself. Unfortunately, I can illustrate this from an episode in my own leadership journey. So, I was a 30-year-old supervisor at a chemical company called Sigma Aldrich. And my group that I had just started to supervise was in an office feud with another group in the same department. And so, the supervisor of the other group and I got our heads together and decided that the best thing to do would be to get our groups together for a mediation. And we would talk it out and we would solve the feud like you would expect any great leaders to do. And so we invited the groups. We showed up at the appointed time in the conference room. The other supervisor was there. I was there. 
The other supervisors' group were all there. But not a single person from my group came to the meeting. We waited five minutes, ten minutes. At 15 minutes, I promised I could say with Nehemiah, I was very angry. So I asked the other supervisor in his group, just wait here. And I marched downstairs from the conference room to the cubicle area where my team sat. And I went up to the first member of the team that I saw and said loud enough that, well, not the whole cubicle area, maybe the whole floor of the building could hear. Listen, I don't know what you guys are trying to prove. And I don't know what message you're trying to send but I'm not going to stand for any of this disrespect. I want everybody up in the conference room in five minutes, and I mean it. Vicky, my coworker, my teammate, fortunately still my friend, said, well, Kevin, are you talking about this calendar meeting invite that you sent for the meeting tomorrow? That's actually the last time I yelled at work, ever. Um, But that's when I learned what Nehemiah apparently knows, which is it's specifically at those times when you're feeling angry about the leadership or the lack of leadership that you should take a moment and think about it. We see Nehemiah doing this. This is in character for him because in the first chapter, he spends several months praying and pondering about how to respond to the, the dis, discouraging report from Jerusalem that his brother had brought him. And in the second chapter, we see him take a moment and pray before answering the king's question about why do you look so downcast? And so we know that Nehemiah has developed this skill, which is essential to leadership. My prayer for us is the next time we're feeling angry, And we want to send that text or hit send on that email or make that phone call that will take a page out of chapter 5 of Nehemiah and think it over first. Dedicate it in prayer. That That will make a big difference. All right. Let's keep reading with the rest of verse 7. So Nehemiah says, after thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. Now, the fact that he talks to the nobles and officials first and then he calls the public meeting has echoes of Matthew 18 and the way that Jesus tells us to handle a confrontation. And so again, we see the leadership standard of Christ being played out a few hundred years earlier in Nehemiah's excellent handling of this. He said, at the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Then I pressed further. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, 
have been lending the people money and grain, but now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day, and repay the interest you charged when you lent them the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Now, this next section is going to be as much of a surprise to you as it was to me if all you do is think about how you've seen leaders respond to public condemnation you know, pretty much every day on TV. Right? We get to see leaders condemned or challenged or rebuked on television all the time, and their response does not set you up to expect what the nobles and officials say. So here are the nobles and officials. The nobles and officials replied, We will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Then, Nehemiah says, I called the priests and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. Now, Nehemiah doesn't give us any more information about what led to this rapid repentance. It's possible that because Nehemiah had seen such progress in leading the people to rebuild the wall, that the nobles and officials were afraid that the people would side with Nehemiah and not them and, and riot. And this is similar to what we saw with the Pharisees with Jesus when the Pharisees were afraid to confront Jesus in public because they were afraid the people would riot. Or it's possible that because the nobles and officials had seen God working to bless their efforts to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple and restore worship in the temple, that they were receptive to the rebuke of God's leader. We don't know. All we know is that they said, we will do as you've asked us to do. But Nehemiah wanted to push the point a little bit further. And so let's see what Nehemiah does. He says, I shook out the folds of my robe and said, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. The whole assembly responded, amen, and they praised the Lord. And then the people did as they had promised. So Nehemiah's challenge to the nobles and officials sounded a lot like me. It didn't sound like me. It sounded a lot like two. No. It sounded to me a lot like, there it is. It sounded to me a lot like Jesus challenging the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. In total, Jesus in this section pronounces seven condemnations on the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And they all begin with, woe to you. This is serious. He's letting them know that the consequences of their failed leadership can be eternal. Or to put it in positive terms, leaders are best when we lead in the context of eternity. 
Leaders are best when we lead in the context of eternity. Nehemiah was really strong with the nobles and officials. He said, don't you know that you risk having God shake you out of your houses and shake you away from your property? Jesus is even stronger with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when he says, God is going to shake you so that you don't enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're even keeping other people from entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, this idea of leading in the context of eternity reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from my all-time favorite author. C.S. Lewis, yes. That was my high school guys over there, they know. Um, In his book, The Weight of Glory, he has a quote that I have, with apologies to him, taken some liberty with. Because I think that it applies directly to leaders. It's a long quote, but I think that it's got a message for us as we're called to lead in the context of eternity. Here it is. Lewis says, it is a serious thing to lead in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you have on your team may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Every day as leaders, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. Now get that. Every day, you and I, with the relationships with those that we influence, are either bringing people closer to Christ or not. Every day, the way that we lead either moves them closer to heaven or farther away from it. That's leading in the context of eternity. Lewis goes on, It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. And I've added and all staff meetings, all projects, all annual performance appraisals, all parenting. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Schools, businesses, organizations, churches, by that I mean denominations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we lead, supervise, instruct, coach, direct, parent, and correct. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Now fortunately, Lewis doesn't leave us overwhelmed by this thought. And the next part of Lewis's quote is really important to me because if you know me, you know that a key component of my leadership is fun, it's play, it's joy. And Lewis gives me permission to be that way. He says, this does not mean that we, leaders, are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. Now, 
Because this is such a great quote, I've included the entire quote in its original form in the YouVersion app notes. So if you go there, you can save it, you can look at it later. It's one of my favorites. And one of the reasons that it's one of my favorites is because Lewis says very clearly, you and I are already living in the context of eternity. The more we're aware of it, the more we behave like it, the more we lead like it, the better we'll be. Nehemiah makes this point to the nobles and officials when he shakes out the garments. Jesus makes this point to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees when he tells them they will not get into the kingdom of heaven. You and I need to remember that all leadership is serious business and all leadership is eternal business. All right, the third mark of the best leaders is that leaders are best when we sacrifice the pursuit of personal privilege. At this point in the chapter, Nehemiah is going to take a break. He's going to take a break from the narrative, and he's actually going to step back and tell us how he and his, his associates led during the 12 years that he was responsible for Jerusalem. And rather than read verses 14 to 18 in their entirety, I just want to give you the things that Nehemiah wants you to know about how he led. So here they are. Nehemiah says, I didn't take the official food allowance. He says, I devoted myself to working on the wall. I required my servants to work on the wall. I asked for nothing. I fed more than 150 people at my table every day. He does say in one of the verses that they had a great deal of lots of kinds of wine. So they were working hard. He says, I refuse to claim the governor's food allowance. Now, several years ago, a colleague introduced me to the acronym RHIP. Does anybody know what RHIP stands for? Okay, well, you'll learn something today. He used it to to explain to me why some of our bosses were flying business class while he and I were in coach. RHIP stands for Rank Has Its Privilege. Another time, the CEO of Sigma Aldrich, who flew all the time and got upgraded on most of his flights, handed me his business class ticket and took my coach ticket. The CEO went and sat in the back of the plane while I got pampered up front. I remember 20-some years later both of those incidents very clearly. The way that leaders deal with the privilege says a lot about who they are. And we see an example with Nehemiah, and we see an example now in Christ. Let's take a look. You may remember just a few weeks ago we were studying the book of Philippians, and um, in a series called And Rejoicing, we got to chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. And here Paul says, you must have the attitude that Christ Jesus had, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. 
And my CEO's business class sacrifice was nothing compared to Nehemiah sacrificing the privileges that were rightfully his as the governor. And Nehemiah's sacrifice was nothing compared to Christ's sacrifice of his divine privilege and even his life by dying on a cross. And yet Paul says, in effect, hey leaders, this is the attitude that you should have. Leaders are best when we sacrifice the pursuit of our personal privilege. It's, uh, it's very easy to find examples of leaders who have done the opposite. They've gotten into leadership just for apparently personal privilege, or when it starts coming along, they get addicted to it. Nehemiah stands in stark contrast to them by pursuing the needs of the people and foregoing his own comfort toward that end. In fact, as I was studying this chapter, it was this phrase that first clued me in to the parallels between Nehemiah's leadership and Christ's. And by recognizing that, the implications for you and I in all of those relationships where we influence. All right, there's one more thing that we can learn from chapter 5. And it comes in the last verse. In verse 19, Nehemiah finishes with a one-sentence prayer. He says, remember, O my God, all that I have done for these people. And bless me for it. Nehemiah illustrates the final parallel between good leadership and being more like Christ. And I call it, leaders are best when we lead for an audience of one. Nehemiah wasn't looking for man's approval. He wasn't seeking anything except to glorify God. And throughout the chapter and even the whole book, we see Nehemiah risking his reputation with the nobles and officials. in order to meet the needs of God's people. We see him foregoing personal comfort because his righteousness, because of his righteous fear of God. And we see him choose the blessings of God over the blessings of man. So we've discovered four ways that leaders are best. We've seen parallels between Nehemiah's leadership and Christ's leadership, but I think it would be cruel if we closed right now and I just sent you out saying, okay, here's how Nehemiah led. Here's how Christ led. Go and do that. Without celebrating together three really important factors that are central to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that mean a lot to us in our leadership roles. The first is this. In his mercy, God doesn't condemn us for all of the times we fall short as leaders. Man, this is so important for me to remember. It's easy for us to forget. And it's also easy against the yardstick of Christ as a leader to see so clearly our fallenness, our failures. It's also pretty easy to look at leaders that are around us and recognize where they're missing the mark. And yet... Those are the opportunities to practice imitating the mercy of God. The second thing that I want you to remember as we leave is that in his grace, God leads us into roles of influence to accomplish his purposes. Now, this is amazing to me because 
it turns out that God's plan for building his kingdom is to use you and me in leadership roles with those people in our sphere of influence. It's his grace that gives us the opportunity to be a part of building his kingdom. And it encourages me that it's his grace that will continue to lead me and guide me. The third thing is that we're not alone in this leadership thing. We're not alone as leaders. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to correct us, and to comfort us. And Nehemiah relied on what he knew about God. I, I don't know how God directed Nehemiah. The book doesn't tell us. It tells us that Nehemiah prayed, but we have no return. We don't have a, like, it's not a book with a prophet where they said, and this is what God said. It's just Nehemiah doing the best he can in prayer, following what he knows about God. You and I as Christians have the Holy Spirit living inside us to guide us and direct us and to comfort us. Let us rely on that more and more. Let me pray. Jesus, help us to be increasingly more like you in every role that you've prepared for us. Let us be your ambassadors and representatives. Let us bring your presence into the conflicts and challenges that we face. God, remind us often to rest in your mercy and your grace and to rely more and more on your spirit living within us. Give us strength and wisdom like we see in Nehemiah to lead your people, to do your work for your glory alone. Amen. All right, next week, Mike Andrus preaches. The week after that, Bill Jones preaches. You've made it through me. There's good stuff ahead. Get out there and influence for the kingdom.